You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hey, everybody. It is uh, Monday evening. Time for some American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. My name is Alex. Thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, this is uh, yet another Zoom edition of American Winer. Um, uh, we've got some news this week. Uh, we're about two weeks away, tentatively, from uh, being back in the studio. I think the the date uh, that I would be back in studio would be Wednesday the 1st, and I'd be back on the Wednesday evening uh, schedule at that point. So I'm really looking forward to having my intro music back and the microphones and just the whole setting uh, instead of being in a basement on a phone. So very much looking forward to that. Um, but uh, joining me this evening uh, is Mr. Cheyenne Goff. Uh, of many, many musical uh, endeavors, but currently he is uh, the chief protagonist at Half Light Music, and uh, he is joining us. Uh, so thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. Um, so uh, I start off the interview uh, with the same question pretty much every time, and that question is, where were you born? I was actually born in uh, Cairo, Michigan, like the thumb area of the state. I see. Yeah. So that's a quite a small town, huh? Yeah, it's a pretty small town. Um, I don't have a whole lot of memories there. Uh, really, any memories I do have associated with that town are basically like revisiting when I was a little bit older. My parents had some uh, lifelong friends that, that stayed in that area. But yeah, that's that's where I was born, Cairo, Michigan. And uh, But you didn't grow up there, you said. You don't have many memories there. No, no. We, um, my earliest memories are probably when we lived uh, on the res, which is uh, up in, um, in the UP. I'm, uh, I'm trying to think of the town. Hessel, Michigan is the, uh, the place where I have some, most of my earliest memories. A little circle drive, expanse owned by the, uh, the Native American reservation up there. I see. And, and uh, so how long were you on the res then? Um, I think we were there for about two years. My dad was actually a tribal officer. Uh, and then we ended up coming to Detroit and we lived in like, I'm going to say like the west side of the city and then the southwest side of the city. And then we lived in Lincoln Park. And then I went to high school in Taylor. It was like we slowly moved south on 75 pretty much yeah you got you, you got a little bit of uh the whole experience when uh, yeah. when it came to that part of the detroit uh so what what the tribe was it though the, the reservation um it was uh uh ojibwa like a chippewa oh, okay. reservation i see and you and you what sort of memories do you have of living there you said those are um, some of your earliest memories it was very communal. Like there were a lot of events at the, uh, at the rec center, uh, at the res center. And, um, you know, I remembered like neighborhood cookouts and stuff like that. Um, but I also remember like a lot of them kids were ruffians. Like I remember getting in a lot of fights and stuff when I was a little kid with some of the other res kids, um, who maybe didn't have as stable as a home as I had at that point in time. And I, I remember mm-hmm. I remember getting sat down and talked to a little bit when I was like four or five. Cause that's, that's about how old I was. I think I was like five when we moved away. Cause I remember I, I started kindergarten at a different, or I mean not kindergarten, but um, 
first grade at a different school. Okay. Um, so you, you moved around a lot during your childhood um, and your adolescence, but like, what were you into? What did you spend your time doing when you weren't in school? And besides well, fighting, apparently. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> I, I was kind of, uh, I don't know. It was a funny thing because I had like a, uh, an older brother who was eight years older than me, who I love dearly, but you know, he's an older brother and he used to, uh, practice his wrestling moves on me and whatnot. And then I had an older cousin that was like two years older than me and he had some bullying tendencies. So I just remember being kind of a no nonsense little kid, which is pretty funny because I, I really tamed out by the time I got to high school. But during my boyhood, um, I was really, really into baseball. Like uh, I still kind of am a, a big baseball nerd. That's why this season potentially is looking more and more uh, disappointing. But nonetheless, that was probably like the thing I was most passionate about, even like as far as investing my spare time right up until I was about 14 or 15 years old. You know, I love music too. I always like to read when I was a little kid and I'd read everything. Like I would, you know, get all of the uh, free pan pizzas from Book It. And, you know, I'd bug my mom for $20 to spend on the Scholastic Book Fairs. I just, I loved reading a lot when I was a kid. So that was, uh, that was about it. All right. Yeah. What a great deal that was. Pizza and, 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 and books. Yeah. I, I read anyway, too. So I was like, oh, man, I'll, I'll take some, some pizza out of the deal. Why not? Because pizza is hard to come by, you know, when you're that age. Oh, for sure. I used to, you'd get the pizza and then you could get like the free movie passes too. So I was like working for a chance, you know, for moms or pops to take me to Pizza Hut and, and then to the theater. I remember reading through all the like suggested for boys stuff and even starting to get down with like the Babysitter's Club and all of the more good <laughs> items. Yeah, I remember uh, the, you remember the, the Babysitter's Club had a like a, uh, a spinoff series, like one of their little sisters. My sister had that, had that series and, and those books were really easy to read. Yeah. And so I would burn through those and get pizza out of them. Yeah, dude, like, I would fly, kids. I would fly through them too, man. Like whatever. Get kind of invested. Like once you're about nine or 10 of those stories in. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, what did your parents do though for a living? My dad really had, um, a few different jobs. He, he probably was most, uh, I guess, comfortable and happy with what he was doing when we came back and settled uh, like downriver area, even though he, he ultimately wanted to get back up North. He did. But at that point in time, he was working as a job counselor for native Americans in the area at the uh, North American Indian association. So he did that for probably the bulk of my like, at home going to school days, I'd say about six, seven years once we were kind of here down river. And my mom just did, um, you know, um, administrative assistant work. And she ended up being uh, one of this guy, Richard Kuhn's personal secretaries. And he owned uh, like Lionel trains and upper deck trading cards. He was kind of a big businessman from uh, Detroit back in the nineties uh, and through the early two thousands. Huh. And and so, uh, what kind of a student were you then when you were when you were in school? I did really good in school. School for the most part came really really easy to me, and uh, 
you know, it was a big deal to my mom and dad that I got good grades. I used to feel like it was unfair because like I easily pulled better grades than like my older brother did. And I just, I, I wasn't, you know, by the time we got, I got to like high school, you know, I'm not going to sit here and try to front like I was some genius or whatever. Like I realized where my interests were and, you know, you would, you would catch me taking a third English class or like a compository writing class before I would want to take like a, you know, calculus or something like that. You know what I mean? I got like the bare, yeah. minimum, I got the bare minimum math and science credits and I just spent a lot of time doing the same thing I did when I was a kid. Just reading yeah. like, oh, okay, you're going to, you're going to give me college credits for telling you what I think Charles Dickens is trying to symbolize here. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> so, yeah you you knew what you were good at and that was just uh kind of where my interests were already established so it you know i did really good i did so good in school i'll say this i did so good in school that when i graduated and i had pretty good act scores my mom wanted to uh kind of force my hand and go into college because i was getting you know really nice offers from schools just on an academic level and, you know, when I told her like, no, you know, because I think, I think we're going to sign a record deal. She basically threatened to kick me out of the house. So <laughs> that's like an awesome problem to have though. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I'm going to sign my, my dilemma is sign a record deal or go to these colleges that, that want me. So, well, you know, I mean, looking back in retrospect too, to be real about it, I would have gone probably to some liberal arts school done the same thing you know well maybe get a a degree in like psychology or teaching or something like that and it's like i mean i don't know i I really i i most of the time i'm annoyed when people are like no regrets man no regrets because i think regrets are like some of the best teachers that we have in life definitely but all that being said, in that situation, I really don't have any regrets because it's it's like that line from Goodwill Hunting when he's like, you know, you uh, you spent two hundred grand on an education you could have got for you know whatever two dollars and eighty five cents in late fees at the public library. Like that's mm-hmm. just where I was. When we were on the road. I was still reading. I was writing. I was getting into you know different kind of schools of thought philosophically theologically which have always kind of been where my interests lie and uh you know what's the difference that i would have gone to college or got to you know go to la make a record with a legend and tour the country for three or four years yeah and i i I think i think the world is uh is better off with trip to the 13th in it anyway so uh so there you go um, Appreciate it. Well, um, so let's let's back up a little bit, though. How did you first get into music? When did that happen? And kind of tell us how it happened. Um, I really probably started taking music serious when I moved to Taylor. About probably the end of my eighth grade year, we moved to Taylor. I was still playing baseball, and I was playing baseball at like a higher level. Like I do, like you know, the, the high school ball, and then I would do like travel ball and different tournament teams and stuff like that. And that was like my summer from the time I was, you know, nine years old until then. Um, And uh, I met this, this kid named Derek Dory, who uh, was just, I mean, he was just funny. He was just like a cut up. We kind of had the same personality. We were into a lot of the same music, which at that time was like, 
you know, probably like incoming like Britpop and like Rage Against the Machine. I remember we were both in the Rage Against the Machine fan club and we'd get the little like 45s that we couldn't even play because we didn't have a record player, like stuff like that. And uh, he at the time was learning how to play guitar. And uh, I just, you know, kind of bought a really nasty cheap no-name brand guitar from the gibraltar trade center talked my mom into spotting me like 50 bucks to 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 complete the 150 purchase of this nasty guitar he kind of showed me some chords and um you know we would go around and, and try to impress girls at like the catholic festivals in the summer with like the three songs we knew <laughs> <laughs> what were those songs do you remember uh, i mean it was probably like it was probably, I think, yeah, I think, I think it was what? like anything with like a E minor to C to G to D progression. So, so we Wonderwall. Like, we were probably doing Wonderwall. We were probably doing like Smashing Pumpkins Disarm. We were probably doing, I remember he used to play uh, Cumbersome and I used to always make him play that because I was down with that song, Seven Mary Three Tune. Yeah, that was a song. That was one of those songs that everybody thought it was like a different. Some people thought it was Pearl Jam. Some people thought it was Stone Temple Pilots. It's like, no, that's Seven Seven Mary Three. Yeah, that's that a was completely. Their, that's that its own thing. Them. Yeah. So um, those were uh, those were probably the the tunes that we were relying on. Do you still have that guitar, that original guitar that you bought from Gibraltar? No, I do not. I think I, I think I actually gave that guitar. I just told my sister she could have it. And I have no idea where it is now. But I was well, gifted. What was happening at that time, too, kind of concurrently, was I was also uh, getting involved with this um, youth group that was like a startup, kind of a parish church youth group that was very much, you know, especially to me then very much out of the norm of the kind of church environment I, I was brought up in. Cause they were like, you know, all about like the Christian rock and, and, you know, I grew up in a very kind of, when we came down river, my grandfather's a fundamentally independent Baptist preacher. So, you know, that was the church that we went to, which was like no long hair, no drums in the church, just, just real kind of strict on, on a lot of things you, you might toss around the term, legalistic if you're <laughs> if you're hip to the christianese but but anyway i was um starting to go to this youth group too and they were just very musically driven and i could always like sing like i remember singing you know when i was a kid for like church specials and then all the way growing up like i could always sing um and liked to sing and and, and all of that but you know when i started putting the singing with the guitar playing you know that that kind of church environment gave me another outlet to start, you know, performing. And, and I also wanted to write songs. So all that stuff just started happening like really fast when I was probably 13, 14, 15. And me and Derek wrote a couple of songs. And then I fell in with uh, a couple of guys from that youth group. Um, and that's what would actually end up becoming bliss 66 is the relationships born in that, in that youth group there. Right. So can tell us about meeting those guys and, and forming Bliss 66 then. So the main kind of dude in Bliss was a guy named Aaron James. Aaron Shasso was his actual real name. 
And Aaron Chasso has an older brother named Jeremy Chasso, who's a fairly well-known two-campus mini megachurch pastor here from Downriver. Well, at the time, he was just this upstart youth pastor that started the youth group that we were all going to. Um, Aaron helped him around with with stuff in the, uh, uh, you know, just in the, I guess, week to week goings on. And and at the time, Jeremy would play guitar, Aaron would play drums. Aaron would try to sing, but he wasn't really that good of a singer. And then they just started attracting different people from the neighborhood and stuff. Because again, you know, these guys are like, you know, cool guys, fun guys, wild. I remember, I remember doing wild stuff with these dudes. Like, you know, I mean, I guess definitely more innocent than, uh, you know, stuff I was doing <laughs> in my late teens, early 20s with a little chunk of change in my pocket. But still, like, you know, we would do like mock kidnappings of kids in the youth group and just crazy stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, obviously the the TPN people and putting powdered detergent in front lawns before a rainstorm and having them bubble up and stuff like that. And so they were fun to be around. But Robbie, who was the guitarist in Bliss, he lived literally right around the block from where they used to meet. So he came. And then he started bringing his little cousin, which was Donnie, who would become the bass player of Bliss 66. Um, Bob, who became the drummer of Bliss 66, his parents went to the church that was essentially sponsoring this youth group. Um, So that's just kind of really where we all literally met. Um, little side note is I knew Bob from when we were kids because we used to play baseball against each other because he was also an athlete when we were kids. Um, otherwise, literally that that's that's the that was the hot spot. We all just um, when we first formed, we were doing like you know praise and worship songs for for the the weekly meetings, and then we would morph that into doing like cover songs of like some of the popular contemporary Christian acts at that time. And then we started writing songs eventually, and that became Bliss. And so it, I know you guys got, you know, things kind of happened fast for you guys, like at least according to the, uh, to the, the stuff that I've read, because you guys were super young when, when you got signed um, and started working with Glenn Ballard. Uh, so just tell us, like you guys, you guys formed, you started writing songs, you were playing around you know, how did that ascension start? How did, how did you guys start getting attention and and how did the ride begin? So it was a little bit of a different route. Actually, we had a a total kind of different approach. um, That was smart. I think for the situation we were in, because we were all so young, it's not like we could go around and, and, you know, just bang out the club scene. So um, to be honest, we probably, had only played a dozen legitimate shows before we were doing our first showcases. What we did instead was wrote probably a hundred songs. I remember we had written so many songs at one point in time, we were just like running out of clever names and we would just number them. Like the song's called like 52. You know what I'm saying? We'll worry about, we'll worry about a title later. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just a real, um, I'm, I'm going to say this word because there's no better word for it, but it, and it might rub some people the wrong way, but it was a kind of a formulaic approach to writing um, pop rock songs. We knew what bands we liked. We knew 
we wanted to drive hooks. Um, we knew we wanted our songs to be stuff that people could sing along to. Um, we all had kind of different influences as well. So when we all, especially when Jordan came along, when the keyboard player came along, he was probably the only kid that wasn't really a part of that youth group. But we knew him through this dude, John Vass, who had kind of been like a coach to us in a lot of ways. He was an older gentleman that um, actually played drums on the first Bliss recordings. And he had like taught Aaron how to play drums and guitar and was just already a presence. So he brought Jordan in, but Jordan was just a really musical cat uh, and just was effortlessly able to consistently kind of add, you know, what a song needed musically or um, just even kind of uh, change a direction uh, chord wise to add something kind of more interesting into the mix. And, you know, that coupled with just Robbie being a really good guitar player, Aaron probably being a better drummer than he was a guitar player, which he did in the band primarily play guitar. Uh, we just had a good foundation for writing songs. We wrote and 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 wrote. We recorded a full length album, which, you know, within six months after kind of shopping it, we were told like, yeah, you know, there's, there's four good songs on here. So, okay. <laughs> so we pared down. Um, and then I, we probably, if I remember correctly, we then went in and re-recorded those four songs. Um, and brought about four more that were in the same vein of those four songs. You know what I'm saying? We kind of like studied ourselves. Okay, if this is working, this is what people are responding to, whatever. And by the time we got to like a 10 to 12 song, nice package, and there's a lot of, you know, for, for sake of not having a three-hour conversation, there were other little relationships and stuff that were spawned at that time. But we ended up... Uh, going to the Verve concert, which had to be like 97. Yeah, and I, I was like a big Verve fan like that. It's still him. Richard Ashcroft to me is like, he's he's my number one in, in music. Um, but we went there and we passed along one of our discs. I can't remember if it was a full length or if it was uh, one of the like pared down five or seven song versions. But we just gave it to the people at the radio station. So, hey, can you take a listen? They did take a listen. They started playing a song called uh, Do It Again, um, which ended up on the record. Um, the earlier version was a little different, though, in some ways. They started playing that song, and then uh, they put us in contact with um entertainment lawyer named Rick Smith, who at the time was uh, his big act that he was working with was Days of the New. Um, mm -hmm. Rick loved the stuff, and um, he shipped it off to Glenn and Glenn loved it and you know skip ahead probably six months we were signing a deal and then we were out doing it we had our hearts broken by uh by Arista though we actually did a showcase for Arista after being touted by their VP like they really loved the stuff and um he came out and we did a showcase at the uh I think it was like the seventh house in Pontiac remember that venue and uh they ended up passing on us and we were heartbroken. I mean, I remember I was, we were still in school at that time, but then when Glenn took interest, 
they came out basically just to say, yeah, we want to sign you. Like, yeah, you can play for us, but we're going to sign you anyway. So that was a whole different experience then. Um, we flew out there once and kind of met them and, and got the vibe for what it was going to be. And then I'd say about four or five months later, we were on a plane and out there to actually cut the record. So we weren't really, we weren't really playing like shows and like getting known and stuff like that. That's why a lot of times when we came back and played the local scene, it, let's just say they weren't always welcoming to us, you know, older dudes that had paid dues, et cetera. Right. Right. Who do these, who do these whippersnappers think they are? That's exactly Just, uh, what it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then uh, you guys, you, you guys went in, you recorded the record, which was a trip to the 13. That was released in, I want to say June of uh, 2001. And uh, you, you guys were, were taking the ride. You know I mean? I remember the first time I heard you, the, the, uh, you guys closed out uh, a mainstream animated movie called Titan AE. They yeah. picked a, a song by you guys called Not Quite Paradise to, to run over the credits. And um, I still listen to that song. I have it on. I put it on a mix in uh, like 2006, 2005, and it's still on my, my iPod and then also on my phone now. Um, would you mind? Uh, this is totally self-indulgent here, but would you mind telling us about that song, uh, the story behind that song? It is a it is a cool story, so I don't mind. Um, we had before we even went out to record the record. This was already a project Glenn was involved in, and he told us like, "All right, like, hey, I want you guys to be on this soundtrack. I think it'll be a great way for things to come out, or whatever." And um, he sent us like the treatment, which was weird because. Like it was a, like a pre-release version of the movie and it was animated. So some screens were like incomplete animations and it was kind of weird to look at. But at the same time, it was cool to be able to kind of like try to write something for it. Well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really have much of anything, you know, kind of that was spinning the wheels or whatever. But Aaron ended up writing a couple of songs that we demoed out and sent back. And Glenn just didn't like him. So he was like, ah, oh, you know, maybe we'll revisit this or whatever. So then when we were out there doing our record, it was happening simultaneously when Glenn was putting together uh, and kind of hopping around studio to studio in LA, putting together the soundtrack for Titan AE. Um, he hit me up on like a Thursday or whatever about getting together just with him to sing essentially a song that he had mostly written, you know, he said, I want to get your input on some things like melody and maybe lyrics, and maybe we can work on a bridge. And, uh, earlier in that week, me and Jordan had just been sitting around in the lounge at the uh, apartments we used to live at. They had one of those like, you know, like central common areas that had like a pool and like a few couches and a TV. And sometimes we would just hang out in there, you know, to get out of our stuffy, but expensive <laughs> LA apartment. <laughs> and uh, we were sitting there and he started playing this progression and I wrote what would eventually become the bridge to not quite paradise. But I didn't know that then, obviously I was just writing a little thing. And I, back then I used to carry notebooks with me everywhere. Now I can just jot it on my phone, but back then I had just notebooks. And uh, I remember I had like a system. I would have like your, your standard like loose leaf or spiral. And then I had like my sweet, cool looking like leather one. So I would like do my 
rough sketching of a lyric idea in like the loose leaf and then i would like refine it and then i would if i felt like it was a completed idea or something i could move over either in like kind of poem or prose or lyric form i would just do that because i was kind of obsessive <laughs> i wrote that system. whole i wrote that whole somewhere from the edge of time and the poets die the words don't rhyme i just wrote that sketching over something that he was playing on the piano Glenn played me this song and he said, yeah, you know, this is a blank spot. And I was like, dude, I think I got something for it. And it just worked phonetically. And then we cut the song and literally mixed it with, uh, I think, I think he did that with Chris Fogel. And that was one of the songs that Chris Fogel did, who he did the Alanis records with. Um, and then it was like a finished product in 48 hours. That was like kind of one of the, wor- the, the first things like that I'd ever experienced in the, in the, record business like hey we're gonna go in we're gonna write this song we're gonna track it and it's gonna be done and we're gonna put it out because literally that movie came out while we were there so oh, really glenn kind of loaded up that bullet you know had me help cock the trigger and, and and then it was pulled that that all came together right before um that movie came out that was like an 11th hour thing and ironically that's the um that's the song that it's really the only song that i ever see residuals from (laughs) oh really that's so cool that you that you that the part that you wrote was the bridge though because to me the the bridge of that song is like it's i remember the first time i heard it it was like it immediately grabs you that vocal hook at the beginning and then the first transfer into the second verse is like oh this is that's a nice resolution there but then the the bridge that that neat little transition that you guys do and then the lyrics are so like you said they fit so perfectly that was really a just a golden ratio of a a pop rock song it was it's like i said i'm still listening to it 20 years later no i agree and and you know what's funny is like when it and it might have been a little bit of just and we wouldn't have been able to probably identify it as such being so young but it might have been a little bit of pride like like maybe we were a little because i remember at first thinking like is this is this a little corny like you know what i mean like like nice big poppy major chords some of the lyrics are kind of like funny they're they're like silly you know and and it might have just been a little bit of like like the the equivalent of of not smiling for your football pictures. You know what I mean? Right. Cause you're too cool to, to, to know that, uh, you know, that you're on an album cover or in, a, in a football picture or something like that. Right. right. Trying to, trying to act up. That's um, exactly, that's exactly what it is. But I've, I've definitely learned to appreciate it and people um, responded to it. And that was a mainstay. That was a bliss 66 live show mainstay. Uh, the song um, did really good in like Germany too. And some of the times I get the, it, um international reports uh it'll uh, also have gotten a lot from like asian countries um that'll give your boy a little bit of kickback <laughs> no, nothing to really write home about <laughs> but, no, but nonetheless the funny the other yeah. funny thing about that song is is the different youtube videos there's actually like a drum cover of it that we, i saw that yeah oh my gosh that, we that, always find yeah. the drummer with it we're like bob when are you gonna play like this <laughs> <laughs> oh, the guy man. like overplays it like crazy it might even have like a double bass but he's got like 15 toms set up it's it's hilarious 
Um, yeah, so so that was it though. You like I said, you guys were on the ride at that point. Like even you just said, it was that was kind of the you know the first uh, um, sort of being plunged into the music industry where you're like, okay, we're gonna we got we have an assignment. We need to do it. We need to do it now. Here it is. And then the product is like, wow, that's actually pretty good, you know. Um, so you guys went out. You were touring with all those bands that sort of uh, the the pop rock bands that uh, kind of you know. Uh, I don't know, demonstrated or populated that sort of turn of the millennium no man's land that uh, that occurred there because the industry was changing. I think the Napster thing was going on around that time, and so it was very I mean, clear that things that's were major, going on. Yeah, that's a that's a major part of our story. That's that's probably probably one of the biggest factors in in the reason because you know. You mentioned the record came out in June of 2001, but the record was done. We had delivered the record by May of 2000. So it, mm. had, it had gotten shelved for a year, and we actually went from Capitol, where, where Glenn signed us because he had his own imprint label on Capitol. We ended up going over to Epic, who ended up releasing the record. So, And that was a big reason because Capitol was losing tons of money because you know people were done buying records right around then and we had a, a a you know a pretty big a uh, advance um signing advance and all the stipend stuff like that for them to just be like we're gonna cut our losses on this just shows you what what troubles they were dealing with yeah and that happened to a lot of groups like one of my my favorite bands called harvey danger and they had the same thing happen to them where they delivered a record and it's an awesome record um and uh the record label had to drop them because of all this sort of you know black magic fuckery going on with the uh with the label and and finance and finances and things so it really is a shame because uh I remember when you guys like I remember sooner or later just getting played it must have been on 89x uh just like very very consistently and uh yeah and and you guys you know it was it looked like you guys were were, were set you know and then all this behind the scenes shit happens and then it's like oh this isn't gonna work we're gonna have to find another another path here so i mean how how did you guys like find out that this was because like i said you guys were touring with you know smash mouth and fuel and all these these different artists for a couple of years there how did all this come to an end like how did that how did you guys uh, find all that out? I often think of the line from the Brian Adams song, Summer of 69, when he's like, Joey quit. <laughs> uh, Jimmy, Jimmy got, got married. married. Or whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> um, because it kind of, it was a little bit of that. I mean, again, we were young. So we all signed our deal. Like I had just turned 18. I had, I had only been 18 for a little over a month when we signed our record contract. And, uh, you know, I was this, I was like in the middle of the pack, like Jordan and Bob had that parent sign off because they were still 17. Robbie, um, was I think 19 or 20. And then Donnie was like one year older than me. So they were all cool. But again, we were all young, you know, Aaron had a few years on this. Aaron was probably like 25 or 26. Um, so anyway, when we, we're out and doing it when we had the um uh you know kind of the the support of the record company it was fine because we were all just single dudes especially after aaron left you know i mean 
that was that was a whole other thing. But um, when it, when Aaron left, the chemistry of the band was such to where we didn't mind each other's company. We were having the time of our lives, um, and there wasn't really a whole lot of at home responsibility. Frankly, there was no at home responsibility. You know, I had I had a car payment and stuff when I got home because. I had a little extra funds from publishing for being a songwriter, so I just tr- I tried to flex a little bit, but you know it wasn't <laughs> it was like an F one fifty lease, like you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like wasn't it nothing too crazy, but nonetheless, like we were we could we could do that. We could load up in a fifteen passenger van and go tour the country and and go through the kind of emotional roller coaster playing one show for five thousand people or even some of the bigger stages we played, which would be like ten, maybe even to fifteen um uh sometimes more if it was a massive festival and then you could play someplace and you're playing to maybe 10 or 15 flat people mm-hmm. and that's like that's just kind of the, the the nature of the game until you're really established we had some markets that we did really good in um i remember like uh pennsylvania we used to play like state college or whatever by like penn state a lot and we had a pretty good draw there and um, Wisconsin was like another area where we did some some big headlining uh, gigs at, um, and then you know from from there again it was just weird. It was just you, you know depending on the 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 gig you 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 might be feeling like you're on top of the world to feeling like what the heck are we doing out here right now? But you know once it became clear that Epic was not really going to invest in pushing the album um and the backstory to that was they had lost like a crap ton of money on the um michael jackson greatest hits catalog that came out the his story at that time they you know i mean it's kind of uh, a well-known story how much they spent on like the big statue in Times square and all that that's right i remember that yeah they just they they lost a bunch of money and literally it came to a point where if your name wasn't Incubus or Fuel and you were a rock band on Epic, you were getting dropped. And we were one of those casualties. So we got dropped. We still, with our, because people believed in the band, you know, including myself, but our A&R from Epic said, well, screw it. I'm taking these guys on my own. And we did some of the songs that ended up becoming the uh, um, Life is a Come Down independently released record at this guy's studio. Uh, and then we put that record out and still toured for probably about another year, maybe, maybe two. Cause I don't think it was officially done done until like Oh four, maybe Oh five, Oh four, Oh four. That was probably when we played our last show. So we had, um, just come to a point where Robbie kind of fell in love. So he was going back and forth to Grand Rapids all the time. Um, I was frankly a wild man and they probably <laughs> got annoyed with, with my antics. I know they did. I, I don't even have to say probably, um, case you know, of I, LSD, huh? Like, I mean, singer syndrome. I don't know. It wasn't really like anything like towards them, but I just, I, I you know, I had to be corralled and, and sometimes frankly, Rob would end up being kind of my, uh, <laughs> Uncle Rob we used to call him, you know what I'm saying? Because he was the guy that drove the van and he was the guy that made sure everybody was tucked in and in bed before, <laughs> you know, he went to sleep himself and that sort of thing. So 
you know, it just was one of those things, man. I, I was young. Not not that everybody else kept their hands clean totally, but I definitely was the one bearing my ass the most. So all of that stuff uh, just probably became kind of the undoing. And it was a slow undoing. I remember we just started kind of stop playing shows. And then it was like, ah, Jordan left. He wanted to start his own band. And that happened. And then we actually brought in Derek, my, my old buddy, who first kind of showed me how to play chords on a guitar. He ended up playing with Bliss for a period of time, even before that, because he actually was still playing when Jordan was in the band. So that was still a cool period of time to be able to tour with. He was probably my only other friend <laughs> from like, <laughs> from adolescence, because once I started playing music, my, my circle of friends became those guys. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just kind of fizzled, uh, within a year of that, I had, um, met Charlie Grover and Paper Street Saints was about to happen. So that, that was just that, that period of time there seemed like, uh, really just kind of a, a hop, skip and a jump before I was already doing that. Yeah. And like I said, you, you never stopped either. You, you've, you've met, like you said, hop, skip and a jump into Paper Street Saints. And then you started Half Light Music in 2009. And you, and then, hell, Bliss 66 did a reunion in 2013, didn't you guys? So Yeah, we you, did. And, and so Paper you, Street has done some of those, like, <laughs> we've done some of those, like, okay, yeah, it's easy to throw a gig on this night. And if you're going to give us this offer for this gig, then, yeah, we'll get together, do a couple of rehearsals and do it. So I, we did that, I think, for New Year's Eve in 2011. So I still keep in touch with all those guys. Um, actually, during quarantine, I was writing material with uh, Chuck Heeman from Paper Street Saints. And, um, oh, no shit. Robbie put together a uh, – uh, he snagged uh, a live performance of me doing If We Could from a Facebook Live and kind of worked with the other guys and pieced together a video for that that we put out as Bliss 66 reunion on Facebook that got like – it was something silly. It was like, man. Yeah, I could be wrong here. I could obviously be easily fact-checked here. I think it was like 7,000, 8,000 maybe just organic views. And um, so, you know, there's there's nobody in any band that I've been in um, really save perhaps Aaron Shasso. <laughs> I'm, not on, I'm not on like very, very cordial speaking terms with, if not more. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of that, honestly. Yeah. Well, I mean, hell, some bands, you know, can't even, they fall apart, especially when they're that young, you know, they fall apart as it's, as the ride is ramping up, you know, they can't even, they can't, they just can't handle it. Um, so they never get any, any piece of anything. Um, but you, you've continued and, uh, you know, you've, you, like you said, you're established now, you know, you've, you, you have, you've been at your current, uh, project, Half-Life Music, you've been doing that for 11 years now. And yeah. uh, you guys, hell, you guys just released a uh, uh, something uh, at the end of April, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, well, we took when we record with Chuck Alcazian out Pearl. Um, great studio. He does really good work there, and he does a lot of big nationals too. In addition to yeah. some of the best local talent, but um, me and Chuck really like doing uh, like acapella versions or piano and acoustic versions because you know we really make sure that the 
the the facts of the matter are we probably have a tendency to overproduce our stuff when we're with Chuck because you know as much as I love like the cool grungy like oh man that sounds like it was recorded in my garage kind of sound and that's cool I also just like really big sounding records you know what I mean like I love how like Def Leppard Hysteria sounds I love how one of my favorite records ever which is a record where most of the people had forgotten about the band by then but um Silverchair's diorama record. I love that record. It's just oh yeah, huge. Silverchair. So yeah. like we probably go overboard sometimes and have to dial it back, but we end up a lot of times with alternate versions of these songs, and we ended up putting out an acapella version of uh, a song called Overflow, which was on the Worship album that we put out in 2015, and then we put out an acoustic version of a song called Love Won't Let Me Down which was on that same record i uh, just kind of felt like the uh, you know the, the climate of the time called for something hopeful but yet really kind of raw so both of those songs really fit the mark there and then we had a alternate version that marty does some really incredible guitar work on of a song called um, um every day that we did uh i want to say 2017 with uh Seth Anderson from um, Assemble Sound down there in Detroit. He, uh, that, that kid's a wizard, man. And, and working with him was an incredible experience as well. But that was like a total departure for Half-Life. It was very pop-oriented. Pop, I would say, kind of more modern alternative. Um, and we were definitely flexing ourselves to just kind of let him create the soundscapes for us. And, and, and we more so were, 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 were sprinkled on on top of, of what he was presenting us. Um, but what he was running off of was just a lot of simple melodies and, and chord structures I had put together on the acoustic guitar. Um, but anyway, I'm getting sidetracked here. That song fit with the other two. So we just put those three songs out as kind of like, you know, just a, a feel good release by some time for us to get back in the studio. I've been writing like a madman um, for this this period of time these last three months got a lot of good ideas i, I honestly feel like we, we have an album's worth of, of ideas and um hopefully we can get to cutting here before the end of the summer yeah two songs in november two that were back at pearl a song called hey little girl and a song called just like you so so you, you haven't stopped being prolific then. So that's, uh, you know, you started off by writing a hundred songs to the point, you know, where you're numbering them and here you are and you're just continuing to bang them out. So. Yeah. And the, the, the <laughs> thing about for sure, man, for sure. Not, you know, it's funny though, is I'm, I'm not nearly as prolific as I used to be when, you know, I didn't have to also plug away 40 hours a week to <laughs> support. The yeah. What do you, what do you do? What's your day job? So, it's funny because this kind of came about through bliss and relationships I had there as well. But uh, I'd say 2004, 2005, I was starting to get to the end of my rope from that record advance that I got when I was 18 <laughs> and uh, no more record company stipends and, and per diems. And uh, this girl that was a big fan of the band, you know, heard me like griping after a show, probably, too many beers deep about how I needed money. You know, I need to find a job. 
I got to pay the tax man because, you know, I didn't claim all the expenses or whatever, whatever, whatever. She's like, well, you can come work for me. I'm like, where you work? She said, I'm a manager at Forever 21. So I became a part-time stock associate at the Ann Arbor Forever 21. Oh, no shit. And now I'm a store manager for Forever 21. Um, I've managed three different buildings. Um, do a little bit of traveling for the company. Um, but yeah, I've been all told with Forever 21 for like 12 years. Spent about four or five years in between them with a different retail company called The Buckle. And it's weird, oh, man. Okay. I never would have never would have saw myself doing that. But obviously, like music and fashion go hand in hand. And I like the pace. I've always kind of been a, a bit of a, um, you know, a style Nazi, if you will. So. Well, that's and that's what's great about that is like stable employment that's not attached to your art, so that the art doesn't be, doesn't become a job. And then free time to do the art and the music when you're not at work is is a really good way of doing it in my opinion like steve albini talks about that all the time where he's like you know you get yourself most musicians you know get themselves a 40 hour a week gig that they you know don't hate and then they spend their, their free time doing music and then whatever comes of that comes of it but that's a that's a good that's a good living man i mean you know that's that's what i do and and uh and that's what a nowadays you know because there really is no music industry anymore, at least not certainly not the way it was back 20 years ago when you guys were, uh, were getting signed, you know, just off of, you know, shopping your, your record. Uh, it's, it's, it's the easiest way to just be prolific and put stuff out on the internet and, and, you know, promote it and play shows when you want and, and just do it that way. Um, so, so yeah, man, that's, that's a great, uh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you found your, uh, your place, man. There's a, there's a good, uh, it's a good story there. So, um, uh, we're, uh, we're, we're at the top of the hour here. We started a little late, so I, I'm going to wrap this up, but, um, I guess, uh, the last I'll, I'll, I'll finish this off with a couple of really quick questions. Um, and, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. But, uh, the first one is, uh, what is your favorite, uh, album ever? Of all time? Yeah. Uh, the Verve's Urban Hymns. Uh, Bittersweet Symphony. Yep, that is it's one of my favorite songs. Uh, what is your favorite song? That's a little bit harder because songs just hit me differently at different times. Like I, I just don't know if I could nail that down. Do you have a favorite song like right now? Hmm. You know, I probably couldn't even commit to that. Let's see how much of a how much of a uh, well, I am. Well, I can't even commit to what my favorite songs are. It's, I just on a weird tip right now. Like I remember, you know, one of the last uh, one of the last kind of like pop songs I heard, and I was like, um, man, I really, really like that song. And like I learned it on my acoustic and. Uh, would have been. Uh, I'm trying to to look it up right now. Um, what's this girl's name? The Bones by Marin Morris. Oh hell yeah, that's a great album. I that whole that album song. is good. When I when I first heard that song, and then she did like the the remakes with uh, 
Hozier, like, I was like, oh, that's incredible. But then, like, you know, dude, it's just, it's, I have just, I will get, like, obsessed with songs and, like, have to hear them again, over and over again. Uh, like, I, I, I know most recently I've been on a Wu-Tang Clan tip because I watched, like, the, the four-part Showtime documentary that they did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've just been going back to Enter the Thirty Six and just listening to like just that kind of dirty hip hop. Like I've been I've been on that. And, you know, Cream from that record is incredible. Like just the the flow of the different MCs in it, but as as well as just the the loop and and, and the way it starts over and the the kind of swell. It's really subtle. Like the Wu Tang records from back then and some of the old Fuji stuff too, just have that same kind of like really like, it it sounds like, like it just sounds like classic hip hop, you know? So I've been listening to a lot of that lately. Um, But uh, records that I listen to a lot, I listen to a lot of um, Incubus, Morning View is like one of my favorite records. I love a lot of Floyd, especially the Dark Side album. I listen to that record, Ad Nauseam. Um, but then a lot of times I'm doing like work. So like I still lead worship um, for different churches. And a lot of the times I'm listening to music, I'm listening to like learn the song, you know? Uh, yeah. So, well, that, that was actually going to be my, my uh, second to last question, which is what are you listening to uh, currently? So we already answered that one. So my, my last question, then we got to wrap up is uh, what, what do you got coming up in the future here? Is there anything you want to promote? Uh, I, I would just say, you know, we right now there's so much that's up in the air in, in the live music industry so it's quite possible that the bulk of of my live gigging is going to be uh solo so people check me out on facebook um otherwise yeah i mean um my plan with half Life music is to get back into the studio and just cut a solid eight or nine song album um, we really haven't done that for probably five or six years. We've been going the like single route or like the, you know, three song EP, that kind of a thing. So mm-hmm. I'm excited about doing like a record and, and really kind of completing the thought that way. Um, Sweet man. Well, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for it. Um, but, uh, I, I got to wrap up cause Dave's uh, got another show coming on here, but thanks so much yeah, for man. coming on, man. If you're interested, I'd love to have you back sometime. We'll keep talking. Cause I feel like we could go another hour. For sure, man. But, keep in touch with me. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And uh, keep uh, keep listening to Not Quite Paradise so I can get like 17 cents every time. Yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get you, you know, a candy bar like once every, you know, a couple months. <laughs> but oh, uh, yeah, man, thanks so much for coming on. It was great talking to you. Likewise, Alex. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Uh, everybody, uh, I will be uh, back next week. I got uh, uh, Farmer Kate coming on. She's going to tell us about her uh, Goats Afloat uh, business. And uh, it's going to be great. She's going to tell us about farming and, and, at uh, the Kensington Metro Park. And um, I've been trying to get her on since last winter. So I'm fine. glad we're finally able to do this. Um, but thanks so much for listening, everybody. This has been American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. And like I said, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll be back. Later. <laughs>